Well, you know how long I kept him sober for. Not one second. Not one second. He not only met me, you know, we, we hung out, but it didn't matter. It did not matter. Because it's a complete mystery, you know. So he called, and he always, he'd get it. I got it. I got it. I got it. Some wealthy friends of his sequestered him on a privately owned island in the Bahamas. And he did not drink until the day he got off the island. You know. He calls me with that. He says, I got it. I said, what? He said, I got, I got the book. I got the book. He got one. There's a couple of hundred uh, first pressing original big, big books left. He got one. Seven grand in cash. I got it. He, we get together. He shows it to me. I said, that's incredible. It's, it's pristine. He says, I know. I said, it doesn't even look like it's been read. He says, I know. I said, so you got the loser book. You got like the loser book that's been handed down from loser to loser. Unread for 65 years. Good for you. And eventually the noise got so bad in this guy's head that he tied his neck to the spigot of a shower head and sat down till he was dead because he couldn't bear it anymore. He got mixed up. He got the wrong nicks and he got mixed up. And he took himself out. Because that noise, which 18 years of psychotherapy barely took the edge off, and I didn't know, I didn't know what it was, the architecture of it, resentments against you, resentments against myself, fears and sexual misconduct. I didn't know that I was psychically chasing my tail until I was exhausted and I keeled over and I died. So Bill went off. He finally had to write the program. They wrote, they wrote the early stuff. They wrote the first four chapters. They're up to chapter five and his friends go, dude, you got to do it. So he goes off. There's some lovely descriptions of it in Not God and also in, uh, in Pass It On. I love the fact that Bill Wilson never did anything standing up that he could do sta sitting down, and he never did anything sitting down that he could do laying down, because that's my M.O. And he went into his room, and he laid down, and he, uh, he, he wrote out uh, the 12 steps. And, uh, and a friend of his who was sober about as long as he was, a couple of years in around there, came over with a new guy who had about six months. And he was like just blowing up with the stuff. And he gave it to them to read. And the newcomer went, eh. <laughs> and the newcomer started ripping apart the first draft of the 12 steps, which just drove Bill crazy. And I love it. I just love it, you know. Um, when uh, uh, the Oxford group at, uh, or Moral Rearmament got themselves into a bind with the Catholic Church, uh, the Catholic Church basically, uh, because the Oxford group uh, welcomed any kind of Christian, any denomination, uh, they crossed swords with the Vatican and uh, the Vatican excommunicated any, any Catholics who joined the Oxford group. Bill was really scared about this, or con certainly concerned. If Catholics had been disenfranchised from AA in New York at that time, we could have literally held our meetings in a phone booth because there was just, that was pretty much the deal. He uh, went to a, a high-ranking member of the church in New York. He gave him the first draft of the big book and uh, said, is this, where, where are we with you guys? And I love this. The, the, um, uh, the, the priest came back to him and said, I only have one problem. He said, in your chapter, there is a solution. You say that you've been catapulted to a fourth dimension. You have found a heaven on earth. That's kind of our deal. The heaven thing is kind of, that's the, we got a big PR push with the heaven deal. Can you pull back from that? And, and uh, Bill turned it to much of heaven on earth. And he turned it to much of heaven on earth. And they said, you're fine. You're cool with us. And they moved forward. Um, 
And uh, the steps got implemented, the book got finished, and it got out to uh, the fellowship. Um, a really interesting thing about the Oxford group is they had something that they tried to adhere to called the Four Absolutes. And uh, the Four Absolutes were absolute honesty, absolute purity, absolute unselfishness, and absolute love. The only other thing I've ever done absolutely is I get absolutely loaded when I'm out there. I've never done absolutely anything. And the the way that they were approaching spirituality and the demands that they were placing on their members, Bill felt very deeply that the alcoholic needed a very, very big hoop to jump through, and they couldn't get it there. So first, uh, the alcoholics in New York uh, left the Oxford group, and then the alcoholics in the Midwest also did. And it's a funny thing, in the description of the sexual inventory, it says uh, in, in the section where they talk about, we don't want to be the arbiter of anybody's sexual behavior. You know, and it says some people think that sex is just a function of, of procreation. Others would have us, uh, you know, they want on a straight pepper diet. Others would have us, you know, having sex with everybody and everything. That's sort of Akron in New York. You, <laughs> you got that going there. And I think he had to balance that. I think he was addressing both of those things. And he was saying, you're right, you're right, fine, let's go. You're right, you're right, fine, let's go. As long as you don't have to be right for anybody else, let's go. Let's do this thing. Um... <clears throat> the other thing that's really interesting is that AA, in fact, was formed by the, the meeting, the confluence of four ideas. William James, Carl Jung, the Oxford Group, and the Sermon on the Mount. They were reading the Sermon on the Mount when they were, right, when they were framing our material. William James wrote, you know, he has this wonderful quote uh, uh, at the end of our section on spiritual experience in the back of our room. He wrote this wonderful book, he was a psychologist, wrote this wonderful book called Variations of Spiritual Experience, which Bill read a lot of. Carl Jung, who believed in a collective unconscious, a big picture, a God thing, a community, a collective unconscious, uh, this was very, very attractive to the people who were trying to create an umbrella where anybody could come here and experience the touch of the Master's hand. Um, so I like that. I like to see the elements that, that went into delivering this thing because one of the pieces of misinformation that you hear about Alcoholics Anonymous, and I've heard it a lot from a lot of different people, is that we are basically a thinly veneered Christian society. And it's just not true. It's just not true. Do we have tenets? Do we have ideas that are Christian? Sure. I, I love Jesus. I love, I love his ideas. I love his work. I'm going to talk about it today. It's had a profound effect on me. If you take a look at the book, The Sermon on the Mount, which I'm going to talk about today, Emmett Fox starts it by saying, look, you might think Jesus is the Son of God. You might think that he was just a smart guy. <laughs> but one thing you must admit, he's really had a heck of an impact here. Why don't we take a look at some of this material, some of these ideas? Um, one of the things I want to uh, talk about, and I want to do right now, with my friend Chris, if he'll please come up and help me out, <clears throat> is I want to read a comparison to you of the original draft of Chapter 5 and what Chapter 5 wound up being. Because I believe that you, you'll see very clearly that the eyes started turning out. That once, what, what I'm going to read, Chris is going to read chapter 5 as we know it in the big book of AA, and I'm going to stop him as he reads and show you the differences between the original manuscript. The original manuscript that was sent out to all the groups that then people had uh, uh, changed, that changed through the rewriting of the book. And I think you'll see very clearly the tack, where they were coming from and where they wound up. Chapter 5, how it works. 
Rarely have we seen a person fail who has thoroughly followed our path. Our directions. Those who do not recover are people who cannot or will not completely give themselves to this simple program. Usually men and women who are constitutionally incapable of being honest with themselves. There are such unfortunates. They are not at fault. They seem to have been born that way. They are naturally incapable of grasping and developing a manner of living. A way of life. Which demands rigorous honesty. The chances are less than average. There are those, too, who suffer from grave emotional and mental disorders, but many of them do recover if they have the capacity to be honest. Our stories disclose in a general way what we used to be like, what happened, and what we are like now. If you have decided you want what we have and are willing to go to any length to get it, then you are ready to take certain steps. Then you are ready to follow directions. At some of these, we balk. At some of these, we balk. At some of these, you may balk. We thought we could find an easier, softer way. You may think that you can find an easier, softer way. Softer way. But we could not. We doubt if you can. <laughs> With all the earnestness at our command, we beg of you to be fearless and thorough from the very start. Some of us have tried to hold on to our old ideas, and the result was nil until we let go absolutely. Remember that we deal with alcohol. Remember that you are dealing with alcohol. Cunning, baffling, powerful. Without help, it is too much for us. For you. But there is one who has all power. That one is God. May you find him now. You must find him now. Half measures availed us nothing. We stood at the turning point. We asked his protection and care with complete abandon. Half measures will avail you nothing. You stand at the turning point. Throw yourself under his protection and care with complete abandon. Here are the steps we took which are suggested as a program of recovery. Now we think you can take it. Here are the steps we took which, we are, which are suggested as your program of recovery. One, we admitted we were powerless over alcohol, that our lives had become unmanageable. Two, came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. Three, made a decision to turn our will and our lives over to the care of God as we understood Him. Care and direction of God. Four, made a searching and fearless moral inventory of ourselves. Five, admitted to God, to ourselves, and to another human being the exact nature of our wrongs. Six, we're entirely ready to have God remove all these defects of character. Uh, we're entirely willing that God remove. Seven, humbly asked him to remove our shortcomings. Humbly on our knees, asked him to remove our shortcomings, holding nothing back. Eight, made a list of all persons we had harmed and became willing to make amends to them all. To make complete amends to them all. Nine, made direct amends to such people wherever possible, except when to do so would injure them or others. 10. Continued to take personal inventory and when we were wrong, promptly admitted it. 11. Sought through prayer and meditation to improve our conscious contact with God as we understood Him, praying only for knowledge of His will for us and the power to carry that out. 12. Having had a spiritual awakening as the result of these steps, we tried to carry this message to alcoholics and to practice these principles in all our affairs. 12. Having had a spiritual experience as the result of this course of action, we tried to carry this message to others, especially alcoholics, and to practice these principles in all our affairs. Many of us exclaimed, what an... You may exclaim. What an order. I can't go through with it. Do not be discouraged. No one among us has been able to maintain anything like perfect adherence to these principles. We are not saints. The point is that we are willing to grow along spiritual lines. The principles we have set down are guides to progress. We claim spiritual progress rather than spiritual perfection.
Our description of the alcoholic, the chapter to the agnostic, and our personal adventures before and after make clear three pertinent ideas. Have been designed to sell you three pertinent ideas. A, that we are alcoholic and could not manage our own lives. That you are alcoholic and cannot manage your own life. B, that probably no human power could have relieved our alcoholism. Your alcoholism. C, that God could and would if he were sought. That God can and will. And here is a sentence that follows it that is not in this version, in what we wound up with. The next sentence in the original draft is, if you are not convinced on these vital issues, you ought to reread the book to this point or else throw it away. <laughs> Thank you, Chris. Wow. They probably heard books hitting garbage cans all over the world. They turn their, their eyes out. You and your is just very rarely used in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. You know, there's, I, I did not have a finger in my chest when I came to AA. You know, and I know some people needed a finger in their chest when they came to AA. I didn't. I, I react very badly to that, always have, and still do. Um, thank you, Chris, for your help. There are no written instructions on how to take the first two steps in the big book of AA. There are specific written instructions on how to take every other step in, in Alcoholics Anonymous. But there are no written instructions on how to take the first two steps. Many people do many different things about the first two steps. I can't imagine that any of them would be bad. You know, people write about them, they do workbooks, they have workshops, they give talks on them. How could that possibly be bad? Um, it's, it's odd and interesting to me that in the, in the literature itself there are no written instructions and yet there are written instructions on every other step. I, I believe the reason why I believe is that these guys knew that no matter what action you were asked to take, that, if you, that these steps are, are endemically intuitive. That if you don't have some idea that something is wrong, that I can piss into a gale force wind, I'm not going to be able to convince you that there's something wrong, that you've got to have some sort of notion. I also really firmly believe that, the, that uh, when I first took step one and step two, I took them on a very primitive level and that as I've done the rest of the work, it has enriched, enhanced, and grown up my experience of step one and two so that they're very, very robust experiences experiences for me now. Um, so initially, I'm powerless. I'm powerless. My life is unmanageable. <clears throat> you know, uh, sometimes, and this has happened for me many times in AA, and I've always been wary of it, and it's, it's paid off for me. I've heard many people, and I know it's true for them, say, you know what, it's not about not drinking for me anymore. And that's not my experience. This is 100% about not drinking. 100% because the minute I become unmindful of that, I'm going to stop doing all the stuff that makes the central miracle, it's a miracle, the central miracle possible because I clearly cannot stop drinking. There's no way. There's absolutely no way that I can stop drinking. Um, and because that central miracle has happened to me, I, I have built, that's where the pyramid has grown for me. Um, uh, step 10 directly impacts my experience of this step. Uh, you know, it, it, it's an interesting thing uh, when we talk about a bottom. Um, what's your bottom? Have you hit your bottom? Have I hit my bottom yet? Um, you, you, uh, if you're new here, you're going to see men and women come into Alcoholics Anonymous that will make your hair stand on end. You will look at that man or woman and you will go, the 
drinking is out of the question. After what they've been through this time, uh, a friend of mine, this guy I know in AA, tells this story. I love this story. A woman came into a meeting. Was, uh, she had an alcoholic seizure, flopping around on the, uh, you know, dress over the head. You know, very, very classy. A uh, lot of integrity that we're left with. You know, a guy puts his uh, wallet under her tongue, and of course the AA meeting goes on. You know, she's flopped around like a boated fish, and she's settling down, and they just, you know, the meeting goes on. It's Alcoholics Anonymous. She wakes up with wallet mouth, which I think she has chronic wallet mouth. And um, he said she, he watched her get into her chair, you know, exhausted after the seizure. I saw her looking around the room, and then he saw it. He saw her go like this. He saw it. And she just got up and minced her way out. He, you know, and he saw it in her face. I've woken up in a lot of crappy places. <laughs> but none so crappy as this. <laughs> you know, how bad an, uh, an alcoholic death are we talking about here? Um, and uh, I cannot retain my bottom. I have to re-experience my bottom through you. Otherwise, I'm working on myself. I can't. I mean, Jean and I talk about it because she knows me since that day, you know, that day I came in. Us talking about that doesn't, it, it's wonderful, it makes me close with her, but I don't think that it, 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 it puts me in a position to benefit from the interruption of the cycle of spree and remorse. How do you do that? You're new. You stop drinking. Can you stay sober until 12 o'clock today? Yeah, anybody can do that, you idiot. Anybody. Okay. All right. Now, how am I going to take advantage of that opportunity? I've stopped drinking. I've got a window of opportunity here to make a surrender. Maybe I can make a surrender. Maybe the surrender that I make, I can make a commitment built on that surrender. I can then, that commitment can create a little window of opportunity to make a bigger surrender. And all of a sudden, I'm on the playing field. All of a sudden, I'm on the playing field, and I start doing some stuff I didn't think of. And then finally, I sit down with another man, and I hold his hands, and I say, I am powerless. My life is unmanageable. I know that you'll restore me to sanity. I've come to believe that that's true. I've come to believe. Come to believe that that's true. Where are the first two steps? They're really in the three pertinent ideas. That's what my sponsor did with me that day. We reached the three pertinent ideas. He said uh, the, that you're an alcoholic and could not manage your own life. Are you an alcoholic? Yes, I am. Can you manage your own life? Well, I don't know. He said, well, can you do some controlled crack smoking? No, I can't. Okay, so at least you can't manage your life in the crack area. That's enough. Let's move forward. Uh, that probably no human power could relieve their alcoholism. Well, therapy didn't do it. My wife hasn't done it. My kids haven't done it. Okay, fine. That guy couldn't would if he was saw it. That God can and will. Can and will. Not would and should, but that it's possible. I don't get to make an appointment to make it happen. And right in there, <clears throat> earlier in the book, and there is a solution, it, it lists a certain kind of thinking. And it says that once a certain kind of thinking takes hold in an alcoholic, right? What's the use anyway? I'll stop after the sixth drink. Once in someone with alcoholic tendencies, when this sort of thinking is fully established, an individual with alcoholic tendencies has probably placed himself beyond human help. They're so sweet to us in this book. They really are. They're so nice. They're nicer in, in, except in the chapters that aren't written to us. They're not so nice. And the chapters to the employer, to the wives, and to the family afterward, they're not as nice as they are in the other ones. Like when they say, uh, in, uh, between step three and step four, they say we uh, uh, entered upon an inventory which m many of us had never attempted. 
<laughs> they're just being sweet. You know, I mean, I never sat down with a guy to show him the work and had him go, God, you do that? I, I've been doing that for years. That's absolutely uncanny. <laughs> so they're just, they're really, they're nice. Um, for God's sake, how did I ever get started again? What's the use anyhow? It won't burn me this time. So here's how. When this sort of thinking becomes fully established in an individual with alcoholic tendencies, I'm taking for granted they mean with that physical allergy, he's probably placed himself beyond human aid. And in the first couple of pages of We Agnostics, it says, if, you, if this has happened to you, if lack of power is your dilemma, you're going to have to find a power greater than yourself which can solve your problem. And we don't care what that is. Early on in my old home group, I heard this guy tell a story. I just loved it. He uh, said he, you know, that this woman was told when she came to, hey, well, we're all told. Make anything your higher power. Make it the doorknob, whatever you want. And she started praying to the tree outside of her house. She prayed to the tree every morning. She woke up one morning, and a uh, city crew was uh, uh, putting the last branch of the tree into a chipping machine. And uh, they drove off, and she ran down the street screaming, Oh, God, save my tree. So she had to make the leap right there. She, uh, she had to step from the boat to shore right in that moment. And chapter 4 says, uh, If you believe now, or if even willing to believe, if you're even willing to believe, we emphatically assure you you're on your way. Lack of power is your dilemma. You're going to have to find a power by which you can live through your difficulties, through the difficulties in sobriety, right? And um, uh, if you're even willing to believe in that thing, we emphatically assure you are on your way. You'll have a spiritual experience in step 12. But, you're, but the, the spiritual experience is not promised in step two. It says, I've come to believe that this is a possible thing for me. Ernest Kurtz in Not God points out something I just love. He says, okay, the whole thing is about not being, not, that's why the book's called Not God. It says in step three, the first thing you have to do is quit playing God. I've always found that to be curious as a sponsor, how can I be telling a guy where to go, what to do, who to date, what to go, and say, boy, I'm just not feeling, playing God. It feels so good to me. Um, but... Uh, if the whole thing is predicated on not playing God, um, boy, I, I just had an acid flashback or something. I don't know what the hell happened there. That was really interesting. Um, that I have already have plenty of faith. I've had faith in people, places, and things, and drugs and alcohol, in this, all this stuff that I've had an attachment to. And what the fourth chapter says is, is you already have the necessary faith. It's not that you have to invent this or come up with something that you're not outfitted with uh, already. But all we're going to do is present you with some spiritual tools, not some spiritual weapons, but some spiritual tools to turn that faith to something that can save your life. The last sentence in chapter 4 says, when we drew closer to him, he revealed himself to us. This, this, is, this was huge for me when I came to understand it. Absolutely huge. Interestingly enough, the only difference in the 12 steps of Al-Anon and the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous is the difference that was in the reading that Chris and I did today. The original step says we carry this message to others, especially alcoholics. The only difference in the wording of the 12 steps in Al-Anon is in the 12th step they said we carry this message to others. And we say we carry this message to other alcoholics. So we, we used what was expressed in the 12th step, but we applied it to, to the different programs. Um, I want to uh, move on to step three, uh, just to let you know that I am powerless. My life is unmanageable. 
I know that you will restore me to sanity, and I turn my will and my life over to you. And those first two steps to say that I have come to believe that something can change here, that I want to create an opportunity for myself and take advantage of it to make a little surrender, make a little commitment, have that commitment make another surrender possible, and engage in the cycle of surrender and commitment, which is as powerful as the cycle of spree and remorse. And once I did that, and I... I I went with my sponsor. My sponsor, when he was reading Chapter 5 to me, did a wonderful thing for me. He read Chapter 5. He took me through the first two steps the way I just did it. And then we reached Step 3, and he said, would you like to make a decision? And I said, you know what? Yeah. I mean, I would have said, you know. And he said, well, let's get on our knees and let's hold hands. And what he did was is he took his book, and he propped it open on the bed. And he didn't sit there and hold my hands and close his eyes to, and know something I didn't know, he read the prayer with me out of the book. And at the time, I was so sick, I said to myself, shouldn't he know this? I mean, uh, maybe I need an upgrade. Maybe I need, like, sponsor 5.0 or something, because uh, this is, maybe this is not good. And of course he knew it. He was being loving, refused to separate himself, used the prayer to separate himself and be an expert. And I've done that ever since, when I, when I do say this prayer to, to guys. The other thing about step one and two, and again, this history helps me here, is because Alcoholics Anonymous was so new, uh, these, these first and second and third step events, which took, a lot of them took place upstairs in Bob Smith's house, were big coming to God experiences. Guys just, you know, they were like explosions. They were very rarely were they of the educational variety. So, uh, and step one and two have been uh, very much of the educational variety uh, for me. And uh, my sponsor held my hand and we said, <clears throat> do I now believe or am I even willing to believe that there is a power greater than myself? As soon as a man can say he does believe or is even willing to believe, we emphatically assure him he's on his way. Again, on his way. Um, step three has been an interesting journey for me in my life. I came to AA and they said, you know what? What are your dreams? You have dreams? I, yeah, I do. I've, I've got dreams. I like to be a successful writer. Okay, do you need to be miserable until you achieve that? You can do it. We'll help you get free enough to do that, to be a writer, to, to write. Do you need to be miserable until you achieve that? And I thought, yeah. I, yeah. Uh, because in my mind, if I don't stay miserable about it, how is this possibly going to manifest itself? It's not going to happen. So, AA comes back to me and says, all right, that, if that's true, then you believe somehow that your agony is going to purchase this thing for you that you want. If you believe that if you don't suffer, it's not going to happen, then you believe you're bartering your agony, in part, that your agony is going to achieve this. It's a terrible idea. <laughs> it's a terrible idea because I actually have a lot of dreams. And if I make sure that I suffer until all of them are achieved, this is going to suck. This is going to suck. And I don't want to have great tunnel sobriety. I don't want to be, I don't want to suffer. I just don't. So, what that, that to me is the third step. If I can say to you, you know, I'd like to write. Go, okay, fine. Be a writer. That'll, that'll probably take writing. You'll have to write. <laughs> and can you be happy, joyous, and I'd like to have a better sex life. You can. Do you need to be miserable until you have it? Yeah. <laughs> then you think it's going to purchase it for you. Uh, our sons, uh, my 
oldest son Micah said something to my wife some years ago that so beautifully exhibited this to both of us. Micah was applying to colleges and he wasn't doing it uh, as promptly as my wife would have liked. And um, she was just, she just couldn't stop, you know. And finally my son, who was 17 at the time, looked up at her and said, and I quote, do you actually think that your anxiety benefits me in any way? <laughs> and and my, my wife thought I was hoping, you know, I um, figured I'd give it a shot here for God's sake. And of course it wasn't. It wasn't benefiting. It wasn't making him do it better. It wasn't making him do it faster. It wasn't doing any of that stuff. So the impact at step three after this initial uh, uh, you know, it, it's an interesting thing. Uh, our book says that the third step, this, this mumbled prayer, to me it was mumbled at the time, that this decision that I had made would have absolutely no permanent uh, effect on my life unless immediately followed by a strenuous effort to face and be rid of the things that have been, follow, uh, that have been uh, blocking me from this power, the only hope, my only hope for survival. So then my sponsor sat down and he showed me how to write resentments, fears, and sexual misconduct. And um, I had a lot of work to do. I'm resentful of Scott for being a lousy father. It affects my self-esteem, pocketbook ambition, and personal relations. You know, it's a funny thing. My sons have received 18 appropriate birthday gifts on the day of their birthday that they wanted. Um, I did stuff on my kid's birthday before I got sober that I would not share from a podium. Too awful. And they were all over my inventory. How was I going to get free from that? You know, um, I've exercised the birthday muscle 18 times. Not once in 18 years have my kids received the day after radioactive guilt gift from the only place that would take a hot check from me. Here's some drywall, boys. Um, all, the, all the kids are loving the drywall right now. There, it's Pokemon drywall. <laughs> So I've exercised the birthday muscle 18 times. I don't feel guilty on my kids' birthdays. I was resentful of myself for being loaded the night my father died. I was resentful of myself for, for lying to everybody about it. I was resentful of myself for the stuff I did on my kids' birthdays, and I put that in specific detail, the stuff I had done. I was resentful of my wife for being alive. I was resentful of myself for getting married. I was resentful of her for making me stay married. I was resentful at uh, myself for stealing. I was resentful at my employers for catching me. I was scared. I was scared, 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 scared. It says in our book that we write fears not in connection with personal resentment. Wow, that's interesting. That's really interesting. How do I do that? What's a fear not in, well, I'm, I'm, I'm frightened of police, but I'm resentful at myself for knocking over a 7-Eleven. So that's not just a free-floating fear. That's anchored to a resentment. What are, I'm, I'm scared of dying. I'm scared of living. I'm scared of getting AIDS. I'm scared of being alone. I'm scared of being with people. I'm scared of success. Scared of failure. How can you live? How can you live? Once you write that fear list, and I mean, I've heard all of those fears on one list so many times. You know, you, there is no, it's like the 12 traditions. When the 12 traditions were first getting hammered out, all the groups had come back to, to Bill with lists of, of things you had to do if you wanted to join their group. If you put all the lists together, you had no Alcoholics Anonymous. There were so many rules that groups had because they were scared of coming apart, of being destroyed. And it's the same thing with fears. 
funny because I think a lot of those rules were born of fear. But um, if, if you took a look at my fear list, it's not a, a, a landscape that anybody could navigate through. Um, and then sometimes I, when I write a fear list, I realize there's a resentment connected to it, and then I go back. There are also fears that have appeared on my defective character list. Fear of confrontation. Um, my favorite defect, I, 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 if I have a favorite, I, I just love the mind reading. I just love it. I, I, uh, my, my wife says, you're not a mind reader, you're barely a mind user. Um, it has appeared on so much inventory that I think, I think that I know what people are thinking. I think I do sometimes. But I don't. I don't. And when I base my actions on what I think, you know, when I, when I was drinking, people, uh, people were doing things behind my back. Then they started talking behind my back. And in the last few years, they started thinking behind my back. And it's hard to catch them. <laughs> but you can catch them. You just have to accuse them of it all the time. And you'll get them eventually. But it's... It, it's, it's uh, it's terrible. It's absolute madness. So my sponsor showed me how to, um, and, and also fear of financial insecurity uh, appears uh, on my defective character list because it feeds resentments a lot. You know, it's a funny thing. If you take a look at what's called the promises in the middle of uh, step eight and nine in the big book, it says you'll know a new peace, a new freedom. You'll be able to deal with situations that used to baffle you. Now, this is written in 1937, economic global collapse. People are doing headers off buildings. Businessmen are selling apples in the street for a nickel. And these schmucks write in their book, you will know freedom from fear of financial insecurity. Believe me, there was no PR man on the job. They never would have let them put that in. They would have said, no, tell them all they'll get like a fridge or something. But don't tell them that. Not now. Not now. That's insane. But they promised it and they delivered. Um, my uh, sexual inventory uh, was very, very unpleasant to write. Uh, it mostly involved me. Uh, I'd, I'd like to welcome any tweakers here today. I'm, I always love to see you guys. There you go. If you've licked the features off your own face, you know what I'm talking about. And um, ever masturbated until you're dehydrated. You, uh, I'd like to welcome. Well, I'm sorry. Um, <laughs> so uh, uh, there was a lot of, uh, of me and me in my, <laughs> my sexual inventory. But it's an incredible structure. It says on the second paragraph of page 69 that uh, we write about where we've been selfish, dishonest, and inconsiderate, unjustifiably aroused jealousy, suspicion, and bitterness. And what should we have done instead? Not what could we have done. What could I have done? I could have dismounted when I realized the person was dead. That's what I could have done, right? What should I have done? <laughs> what could I... <laughs> what, what could I have done um, is I shouldn't have even talked to the person. I shouldn't have been in the state. I shouldn't have even been there. What, what should I have done? Not what I, what I could have done is what I did. That's what I was capable of doing. What should I have done? And then in the last two paragraphs of page 69, it, it, it mirrors something that, it, that Silkworth talks about in the beginning of the book. He talks about, God, it's so incredible in a doctor's opinion. He talks about that we long imagined that some form of moral psychology would be 
uh, he says so many incredible things in that. One of my favorite things is there's a paragraph in uh, the doctor's opinion where he basically says, "You probably think it's pretty weird that I'm, uh, you know, that I'm uh, in this book and that I believe in what these people are doing. It's not scientific, you know. It's not, it's not." AMA, it's not, you know, and if you're in the medical profession, prof professional, you might think it's really odd I'm doing this. And then he says, come work with me for a while. Come on the firing line with me. See the war warped lives of blameless wives, children, husbands. Come say, and then he says something that freaks me out. He says, let it become part of your, your life and part of your waking hours and, part, and your sleeping hours. He was dreaming about it because there were all these people he couldn't help. I mean, it had obviously molded its way into his consciousness that much. Uh, and it was really funny because if you ever get a chance, uh, um, Bill Wilson wrote some letters to Carl Jung to let him know uh, the key contribution he made to the founding of Alcoholics Anonymous. Years later, many years later, in the late 60s before Bill died, Jung and him actually had contact. And Jung explained to him, I, I, you know, I'm sorry, but I could not respond to your letters because he was all, already being accused of being a wacko and a charlatan. And he said there was no way that I could get involved in AA and have, he didn't believe that he could weather that storm. But he absolutely believed in the spiritus, in the spirit of, of what Alcoholics Anonymous was imbuing people with. Um, <clears throat> in the last two paragraphs of page 69, it says that now that I write this stuff, I am now going to engage in a relationship with God. I am now going to get to work with God. We're going to join together, we're going to join forces, and I am going to walk towards the man that I want to be. Moral psychology. Uncover, discover, and apply. Not uncover, discover, and get loaded again, which is pretty much what I did, you know. Uh, uncover, discover, and apply. And this idea of moral psychology is is mind-blowing to me. I never did that with my therapist. I had attachments. I had cravings. I had things that I wanted. I had, uh, you know, a lot of stuff that I was digging up from the past, all of which was good, but I never said to my therapist, you know what? I like to be an honorable guy who tells the truth, who doesn't feel ashamed in front of his wife, who doesn't feel ashamed of himself, who, is, is a, who I know is a good guy, who my dad would be proud of. Who's in, and, and I want to be a guy who's prosperous. I want to be making a living. I want to hold my... I want, that's what I want. And Alcoholics Anonymous says, you got it. You want that? Work toward it. Do you have to be miserable till you get it? Let's see what happens. Because I guarantee you, if you work towards that and you stay open, something cool shit is going to happen. Something really cool. You know, how many times have we heard people get at the podiums and say, I can't, I don't have enough time in the day. I can't. The road has obviously not gotten narrower. And yet in the description of resentments, it says we squandered the hours that might have been better used. For every five minutes I spend in, in resentment, it's five minutes I spend in resentment. It's five minutes I've cut myself off in the sunlight of spirit. And it's five minutes I could have done something else. Fishing, walking, something else. Every five minutes I spend in resentment, I flush 15 minutes down the toilet. And that makes perfect sense because my life was exhausting, man. Absolutely exhausting. And I'm like, man, I'm just, I've been smoking for years now, for years in Alcoholics Anonymous. So this moral psychology, this coming to an agreement with God, telling him this is the guy I want to be, and then walking in partnership towards that, that's been my experience in Alcoholics Anonymous. I didn't know it like I know it today. I didn't really know that that's what I was doing. Right. So... 
A thumbnail sketch of, of step four. Uh, we're going to take another little break now and then come back and have a short session before lunch. And um, one thing I want to ask you to do, I believe there's pads and, and pens back there. If you have a question about something I've covered or would like to write me uh, down a suggestion besides why don't you go away, something other than that, um, uh, uh, that uh, something you'd like me to cover, that uh, uh, please write it for me and, and just put it up here. That would be, that would be great. Okay, guys, I'll see you in about uh, uh, seven minutes. I've got some great questions. I want to address a few questions at the beginning of this session and then uh, kind of use them to leverage our way into step four again. Um, great question. How is the principle, quote, principles before personalities reconcilable with the cult of AA personality, i.e. circuit speakers first and last name identification as opposed to anonymity? I don't believe that it's reconcilable at all. Uh, I believe that they're completely at odds with each other. I uh, absolutely do not believe there's any problem with identifying yourself with your last name in Alcoholics Anonymous. The tradition says that we have anonymity on the level of press, radio, and film. I, I purposely give my last name, and my sponsor actually used to give his uh, um, phone number from the podium so that people would have an opportunity to call him so that he could do 12-step work. So I have no problem, me, and this again, me personally, don't take it as a personal indictment of what you believe. Uh, I have uh, uh, I purposely use my last name because I, I, I don't want to be anonymous in Alcoholics Anonymous. The cult of personality is absolutely at odds um, with, uh, uh, with principles before personality or anonymity. And any time, and I talked about that earlier when I said I misidentified the people that I got sober with, I misidentified them as the source of the mystery. Uh, when I've done that, uh, I am doing them a great disservice, and I have suffered for it, and I've caused suffering because of it. Um, also, and uh, when I, I talk about the 10th step today, I'm going to talk about it in very specific terms. Um, my uh, uh, home group suffers at times from great spiritual pride about the way that they do the 10th step. And I know it because I hear their 10 steps, and I know they suffer because they think they somehow, some of them think they do it a little more better, a little more goodish than the other people in AA. And I don't believe it. I don't believe that the method I'm using to work the steps is better than the one that you're using. I don't. I don't buy it. And yet I've said to myself, well, what are you talking about? You can't do that that way. How can you do that that way? How can you do that? If you don't list the defects, how can you do it that way? Well, I have done it that way for 25 years. Seems to have worked out, but thanks for your input, you know. Um, uh, so I, I do believe that principles before personality is not reconcilable with the cult of AA personality. I'm a circuit speaker. You know, it's a funny thing. I went to OA years ago. I was up over 300 pounds. And, I, uh, and I'll talk more about this in a bit. And I went to OA and I said, you know, I'm a circuit speaker. And they said, yes and a very fat circuit speaker. And, um, and I, and I, and I, I said, would you like me to speak? And they went, actually, no, no. And besides, your mouth's full and we can't understand what you're saying. Um, and they basically said, you can't spend your AA money here, pal. Can't spend it here. No comprende AA money here, okay? Um, I was trying to leverage whatever, uh, uh, you know, and, and I will tell you the truth. It's, I, I, uh, it's, it's tough for me to go to meetings in the Valley where I have some anonymity. And 
it, it's not fun. It's not fun. It's not, I'm not going to drink over it or anything like that. Yeah, anonymity, so I, I hate not being anonymous, so I'd give an all-day workshop and talk for eight hours. I mean, you know, there's something wrong with that picture, all right? But uh, I, it's a great question, and I have to find a way to not participate in entrenched power in Alcoholics Anonymous. I have to find a way to not play God. I have to find a way to share with you my experience, strength, and hope, and not insist that it be yours. So I love whoever wrote this question. It's a great question. But again, the name thing for me is, is something that I, 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 uh, I don't want to be anonymous in Alcoholics Anonymous. <clears throat> Another uh, terrific question which will help me uh, begin this session. Uh, the question is, uh, I was given a four-step format that... Um, that includes an extensive list of possible character defects, i.e. impatience, defensive, overactive, paranoid, uh, perhaps, uh, or perhaps a more exact nature of my wrongs, to selfish self-seeking. Is this, is, this, is this list more appropriate for a 10-step, or do, I do you think that it makes sense to offer it when sponsees do their, their uh, four-step inventory? And my answer to that is I don't know. Uh, I, uh, again, I'm going to say basically what I said when I talked about the different methods that people use to work the first three steps. I can't imagine that it's bad. I just can't imagine what, that it's bad. I, I, I've seen checklists, workbooks, work lists. I don't use any of them. I don't have a list of defects that I give to sponsees, and I, I, I can't imagine that it would be wrong to do so. This is the thing I know I want for me. I'm such a sophisticated guy. And I'm so intellectual, and I've put up so many explanations and barriers, if I could write my inventory with my face, I would. I want there to be as little in between me and this process. If I could write it in blood, I would. That's why me personally, I don't type mine. I was a professional writer for years. I, I do that now. And writing at a computer is a specific, has a specific kind of deal for me. I want it to be... I want it in my face. I want to roll in it. So, um, uh, again, I know lots of people who do lots of stuff about this stuff, and I just think it's we're all seeking God, man. What a what a great great thing. Um, so I did my first three steps verbally with my sponsor that day. He asked me if I was uh, an alcoholic and my life was unmanageable, if I had come to believe that a power greater than myself would, uh, would restore me to sanity. I didn't think it much, but he said, fine, let's go, let's go. <laughs> now, I have had uh, experiences wor working the steps with guys where I've said, do you think you're an alcoholic? And they go, no. And I go, want to go to a movie? Um, I am not going to sit here and, and, and talk you into being an alcoholic. Why? Because I can't. I can't. If we can come up with one little chink in the armor, if we can come up with, well, do you, did you lose it here? We'll, we'll talk about it a bit, but ultimately at the end of the day, not my job. Not my job. Um, and so we took the first two steps. We reached step three very simply, made a, a decision, got on our knees, held hands, said a prayer. And then on the top of page 65, it says that it will have little permanent or lasting effect unless immediately followed by the strenuous effort. And then I began the inventory process. And I wrote, I'm resentful at. It affects the cause. What is the cause? And it affects mine. It affects mine. S-P-A-P-S, self-esteem, pocketbook, ambition, personal relations, and sex. And then on a separate piece of paper, I wrote my defects of character because in 6 and 7, I'm not bringing my defects to God. I'm, bringing, I'm not bringing my resentment to God. I'm bringing my defects to God. Um, someone talked to me uh, earlier in the meeting, and I uh, was reminded about the fact 
that we don't know what we're doing, what we're doing in AA. We just don't know the impact that we're having. And we just turn around as fair play, because I didn't know a lot of the damage that I did out there. And you know what? Sometimes I don't know a lot of the good that I do in here. I had a friend named Howard Cooper. A few of you in this room know him. He was a guy with an English accent. He was a regular member of uh, the Redford Menstag. He died sober 22 years. He was one of the great guys I've ever met in my life. Uh, Skid Row guy, thrown out of, uh, uh, he was thrown out of Harbor Lights on 5th Street. That's an accomplishment. It's getting thrown out of a dumpster, basically. <laughs> and he got called early in sobriety down to uh, do a 12-step step call on a guy named Sullivan in the Skid Row uh, Hotel. And he and this other guy went down, they talked to this guy Sullivan, who was laying in bed. And uh, they left, and subsequently Sullivan drank himself to death. And ten years later, uh, Howard was about 11 years sober, and he was at an AA meeting, and a guy walked up to him and said, you know, I just want to tell you you saved my life. And Howard said, that's very nice, but I, I don't know who you are. And the guy said, well, do you remember this guy Sullivan? Howard said, yeah. And the guy said, I was hiding under the bed the night that you 12-stepped him, and I heard everything that you said, and I never had another drink again. We just don't know what we're doing when we do it. I loved that man so much. He was such an incredible example of AA. One night he was dri he, driving out to Vegas, and he, he liked to drive out late at night, get, you know, get out on the road. He got out on the highway, he's driving through the desert, and a cop pulls him over. He goes, son of a bitch. The cop walked up to the window and said, Howard, are you a friend of Bill Wilson's? And Howard said, yeah, why? And, and the cop said, well, I'm, I'm in the fellowship, and I like to, I saw your bumper sticker, I like to start my shift with a little fellowship, so I just want to pull you over and uh, have, a little, have a little chat. <laughs> there were some great guys, there were some great, wise, loving, kind old-timers when I grew up in Alcoholics Anonymous. I like the scalpel of truth when it's applied with the anesthetic of love. That's the way I like it. We had a guy in uh, the North Hollywood group at that time named English Bill, who was a great guy. He was a sweet, sweet guy. He used to say he was the town drunk of London. And uh, I'll tell the story. It's one of my favorite newcomer stories. He used to love to tell this story. So old-timer grabs a new guy. They get a 12-step call. He throws the new guy into his truck, and they go driving down the road, and they get out to a dirt road to get see this guy drive out in the boonies on this dirt road. They reach a lean-to, and the lean-to is just, you know, it's just like a lean-to with a burlap flap on it, and they go in. There's a drunk sitting in a lean-to on a filthy, stained mattress, uh, uh, w w just in his underwear, filthy underwear with a little candle flickering in a can, and he's sucking on a bottle of wine. And the new guy looks at him and says, look, I'm new. I haven't been around here very long. But I will tell you this, and I know this for sure. If you don't stop drinking, you're going to lose all of this. <laughs> it's a great story. And it's true. It's absolutely true. Um, after I wrote those defects down, and I'll talk more of them as I, uh, about them uh, as I talk about uh, the 10th step. What are the defects in me that if God were to remove, the resentment would be gone? Blue skies, magic wand, God has a magic wand. He comes, touches me on that. What specifically? I'm resentful at my wife for calling me a pig. It affects my self-esteem. Pocketbook, ambition, personal relationship, sex. It's definitely a knock in the crotch. So what, what is it in me that if God would remove? I'm sloppy. 
<laughs> I'm stubborn, I'm judgmental, I'm filled with shame and guilt, and I have lust. Now, what's lust? Lust isn't sexuality. Sexuality is great. I think sexuality is great. Wanting to have sex, feeling sexual is great. Here's the deal. When I attach it to power, it becomes lust, and then I'm suffering. Nothing wrong with being hungry. Love being hungry. Love eating. When I attach it to power, it becomes gluttony. Nothing wrong with these are God-given feelings, but when I attach them to self-centeredness or power, I'm screwed. So, nothing wrong with sexuality, but if then my wife, if I have to be nice to my wife because I won't have sex later, then I, I'm tainting the whole process of relating to her, right? If there's still conversion tables on the back of cleaning products of sex to, to cleaning activity, I'm fried. I'm fried. So how can I stop this attachment? How can I do it? The inventory has been the lever for that. So I wrote my resentments, who I was resentful, the cause, what it affects, and then the defects. And I wrote resentment number one, resentful at Nazis, defect of character list number one, here are the defects. So that when I read them, I could read them straight across. I'm resentful at the cause, it affects, and these are my defects. And then when I do six and seven, I take that list, I put it aside, I take the defects, I put it in front of me, and I go to my maker and I say, Pop, please, I can't bear this anymore. Please. So that's the configuration of the, uh, of, of the resentments for me. And in each, you know, it's a funny thing. This is a disease of self, right? So selfishness, self-centeredness, and self-seeking are the same, but they're a little different, you know? Selfishness is wanting it all for me. Uh, self-centeredness is thinking it's all about me. Uh, self-seeking is trying to figure out what's in it for me. So, so they're, the, they're the same, but they're different. And when I talk to God, I like to uh, be as specific with him as I possibly can. Because <clears throat> the third step without this process is, Pop, I'm yours. He says, well, yeah, I'm God. I mean, I knew that. But thanks. It's very nice of you. What do you mean? And I said, Pop, can you take this? Can you take these defects? Can you take this sexual misconduct? Can you take these fears? And then, then I'm on the ground. I'm on the playing field. I'm engaged and enjoined in a working relationship with my higher power. And then he says, yeah, I'll do your work. Do mine. Do my work. I'll do your work. When I drew closer to him, he revealed himself to me. In Bill's story, he talks about step 11, which I'm going to talk about later on. He has some of the most beautiful poetry in the big book of AA. He says the price had to be paid. It was the destruction of self-centeredness. I had to turn to the Father of Light who presides over all. You know. So this was the beginning. This fourth step, this examination, this admission was the beginning of that for me. Then I... Uh, um, uh, wrote my fears, uh, uh, not in connection with personal resentment. Uh, I went through the list before. I'm frightened of being alone. I'm frightened of being with people. And then the sexual inventory. I take the people who were offended and I put them on top of the page. Sometimes it was just me. Many times, mostly, was me. And, um, and then I would have other people. People I didn't remember. The woman with the hair. The, you know, the thing. The, um, the puppy. The thing. The whatever. And, uh, and uh, you know, the, me, the woman, my wife, the, uh, who was affected. Who was affected. Um, you know, when I give instructions of sexual inventory, I usually, it's really hard. It's hard, guys, to really say, oh, no, no, <laughs> no. And uh, I usually go through a litany of stuff, a list of stuff I've done to just relax them. You know, I say, ah, my cousin, and this, my brother, hey. And I kind of go through a list. And one day I went through the whole list. Usually guys, you know, greatly relieved. And I turn around and the guy's looking at me like this. <laughs> you know, like he wanted a shower, you know. It's like... 
Where am I? Okay, I, uh, I walked out on my family and lived with another woman right before I got sober. So my wife, my kids, the woman, the woman's family, and everyone I worked with at that time was on the top of the page. Where was I selfish? I wanted everything for myself. I wanted the situation with the woman. I wanted what, what was home. And I talk about it. It says we've got this stuff all down on paper on page 69. It doesn't say make a list. Now, they want me to write the story of how I was selfish, dishonest, and inconsiderate, and did this other stuff. It doesn't, they don't care if the Chablis had a blush and it was a full moon. They, they don't really want me to include that stuff. They just wanted me to write about where I have engaged in this spiritual sickness. Selfish, dishonest. I lied to myself. I lied to the woman. I lied to my wife. And I talk about the specific incidents where I did it. Dishonest, inconsiderate. I was not considerate of the people I was working with. This woman worked with me on the same job. I wasn't considerate of her community, which she had to re-enter. And I talk about that. Where did I unjustifiably arouse jealousy, suspicion, and bitterness? I created jealousy in myself, in, in the woman, in, in my wife, in, in the, uh, uh, my, my workmates were jealous of this relationship that we had. And you know what? In the end result, I became jealous of, of people who I felt were living a sane life. Suspicion. I became suspect of my own sanity. I, everybody was suspicious because I didn't know what I was going to do. And I write about it a bit. I talk about it anecdotally a bit. Not a book, but a bit. Selfish, dishonest, inconsiderate, unjustifiable, aroused, jealousy, suspicion, and bitterness. Well, I created jealousy, bitterness, terrible bitterness in my sons. They knew something awful was happening. Um, there's a guy here today who's one of the first guys I ever sponsored. His name is Roland. I started sponsoring him in my first year. And uh, he used to call my house every night and he'd say, Scott, it's Roly. I'm sober. I love you. Good night. He'd hang up. Every night. My son, Micah, five years after this, I was six years sober, he came to me and he said, you know, Dad, I, when I was a little boy, I couldn't fall asleep until I heard Roland's voice on the machine. And once I heard Roland's voice on the machine, I knew it was okay to go to bed. Because he knew one thing, and he knew it for sure. He knew that Roland would not call me if I was drinking. That he knew. He knew it. Now, this is the kid. I looked him in the eye, and I said, there is no God. I never had to go to back to him and say, there is a God, because you guys came in on my house every night over the answering machine, and you tucked him in. We don't know what we're doing when we're doing. Roland didn't know that. Years later, when Ro Micah told me that just around the time that Roland was convinced that he hadn't helped anybody in AA, and I got to share that story with him. Roland's also from another country, and uh, he likes to call me during the last few minutes of any playoff game. Uh, <laughs> Uh, I, I, I never seem to get calls during the World Cup. Don't know what that's all about. So uh, a couple of years ago, uh, <laughs> a couple of years ago, the Super Bowl was about to start, and my son Micah said, hold, hold a second. He dials Roland's number, and I hear him say, let's get this over with now. <laughs> I hear Roland cursing at him in Spanish. So. <laughs> um... And then at the end of the sexual inventory, there is, what should I do instead? What kind of man? Now, the opposite is, for me, and this is just me personally, the answer isn't, I shouldn't have been bad. I should have missionary-style sex for the rest of my life and not talk to anybody. That's not the answer for me. The answer for me is, I want to have an exciting, romantic time in my life. That's what I want. So I wrote down, I shouldn't have lied to the woman. And, and the answer for me is not, it's not moralistic for me. It's not, many people get divorced. Many people go through this thing. But I, I didn't play fair. 
I should have either committed to the other woman or committed to my marriage and engaged in that process. But I never should have done both at the same time, and I never should have laid my suffering on these people. That's, for me, what I should have done instead. I can live that life. I can live that life. You know. And um, I read my uh, inventory to my sponsor. The, uh, um, the longest inventory I have ever heard as a sponsor was 22 hours. And the shortest was 20 minutes. And they're both dead. Because neither one of them continued to do the work. I just don't care how long a man's inventory is. I don't care. The thing I know is like the third step will have little permanent or lasting effect unless followed by this other stuff. The fourth step will have little permanent or lasting effect unless kept in tune with the rest of the work. I've never read a complete fourth step. If I've ever heard one, I do think it would look like an outtake from scanners. I think the guy would just... His brain. I mean, I've remembered stuff later on. I've called my sponsor and gone, did I tell you? No. No. It's like a, it's like a crystal shaking loose from the roof of the, the cave. It just crashes on the bottom and opens up these other opportunities, some of which I have been alarmed that weren't on my fourth step, you know, stuff. So at any rate, uh, me personally, I don't care how long or short a guy's inventory is. Uh, uh, when should you do start your inventory? Uh, I don't know. Uh, the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous refers to it three times. In Bill's story, uh, when he talks about working all the steps, which he does in the last four pages of his uh, story, he says that he did it in his first three weeks of sobriety. First couple of weeks of sobriety, came over, he just did it. He acquainted his friend with his wrongdoings and uh, asked for them to be removed root and branch. And uh, then it says, uh, if you want the third step, and in Chapter 5, if you want the third step to have uh, any little permanent or lasting effect, you should do it right now. And then my favorite... Uh, is <laughs> mention of it is in the seven in, in chapter seven. If you're new, if you want to know what we're going to do to you, you can read it. It's in the sadistic seventh chapter of the book, and um, and where it, it is cruel. It says basically that we're to uh, get an alcoholic while he's down, down bad, just off a bender, really bad. Talk to him then. <laughs> and it says get him to laugh with you, get him to cry with you, get him to relate to you, and then when he's relaxed. <laughs> Keep upon him evidence as to the hopelessness of his situation and make sure that he doesn't have a handgun. <laughs> it is sadistic, but it's right there. They don't even try to keep it a secret from you. So you can read it, and then we're going to do it to you anyway. Um, <clears throat> anyway, it says in the seventh chapter, uh, it says that... Uh, it says that when you start, when you're working with a guy, he might, uh, he might want to, uh, he might want to start out on this program of action immediately. And the book says, someone asked me to mention the pages I'm on, so I'm now I'm trying to find them, which probably won't work out for me. Uh, it, it, it says it might not be wise because if he stumbles later on, he might blame you for having rushed him. Then you turn the page and it says, but on your second visit, feel free to. So it, it, it just basically says, don't start the guy on the fourth step the first time you talk to him. Uh, so is that good or bad? I don't know. I, I know it's in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. Uh, when a guy asks me to sponsor him, I suggest that he call me every day for seven days. If he can put seven days' worth of calls together, then I'm willing to spend to do some stuff with him. If he can't do that, then we're, we're I don't know. It's tough. Uh, I, I, uh, uh, and, uh, and then whenever he tells me that he'd like to start to work, I'll start to work with him. Uh, my first, first sponsor wouldn't start me on an inventory until I was six months sober. 
I don't think there's anything right or wrong about that. It's just the way that, uh, that his AA family did it. We all have, in the culture of Alcoholics Anonymous, we all have, some of us have AA families, home groups, some of us have traditions. As long as I don't have to quit AA to join my home group, I'm fine. The minute I have to, my home group just does it more better, a little more special, that it participates in entrenched power, I have once again separated myself from the deal. And I've been separated my whole life. And the only thing that's connected me is this higher power, which the minute people try to ascribe dimensions to that higher power, the separation, it breaks down and it starts happening again. Um, so I, uh, I did all this stuff. I went to my sponsor. I, uh, I read my inventory at nine months of sobriety. Um, <clears throat> I love that section in, in, uh, in the seventh... Uh, in, in uh, chapter 5 uh, uh, about the double life the double life that the alcoholic leads if you have uh, managed to whittle it down to two lives my, my hat's off to you I mean I uh, uh, it's uh, pretty, pretty amazing um, my wife and I lied so much this is where we wound up we were in New York one day and uh, we were walking down the street and a couple who we knew very well saw us and came running to us and the woman grabbed Nancy and said I'm so sorry. And Nancy positioned the woman so she could look at me and she mouthed the words. My wife did, who died? Who died? And I went, your grandmother. Your grandmother. That was our dance. She knew that, you know, you, you get it. <clears throat> In many spiritual pursuits that I have seen that are proprietary, where you got to belly up and write a check, where you gotta wait till the aliens burst out of the volcano, where you gotta do whatever you gotta do there, um, is about as uh, uh, completely antithetically uh, opposed to what Alcoholics Anonymous is. We emphatically assure you you're on your way. We, you're, you're on board, you're bellied up, you don't have to do anything you're in. All that's necessary is that you have a desire to start, stop drinking and that you're with us. And here we go again. All through the book there are these, it's, it's almost like watching the sparks in an internal combustion engine. You know, in the third step, it says, after we say the prayer, sometimes in effect a very great one is, is followed at once. It also says that we can take the third step with anybody, like our spiritual advisor, uh, and I always read this, is, or your wife. I go, or your wife, fat chance. Uh, and then um, the idea of praying with my wife when I first came in was a, a, a hysterical idea. Uh, now in the fifth step, it says, it says, now we really begin to have a spiritual experience. It also says, again, you could do your fifth step with your wife. <laughs> um, <laughs> yikes! And then in, um, in the uh, middle of the eighth and ninth step, it says, we'll know a new peace, a new freedom, we'll be able to deal with situations that used to baffle us, we'll know freedom from fear of financial insecurity. In the tenth step, it says that we'll know, we, we'll actually, the alcohol problem will be removed, we'll know the correct use of self-will and sanity will have restored. In the eleventh step, it says the occasional hunter inspiration will actually become a working part of the mind. So for all you pot smokers, it means, wow. <laughs> sticks around. It's pretty cool. And in the 12th step, I'll actually have this spiritual experience promise that is going to swing the doors of life open to me and give me this incredible bounty. So all through the deal, you get the hits. And I know it. I know the people that I've been with all this time. I've seen them. I've seen them get the hits. Despite some terrible stuff. Get the hits. Um, so I did my fifth step. 
My sponsor uh, took me to uh, step six and seven, which have one little page in the big book of AA. The biggest little page in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. Um, they, uh, in the 12 and 12, it says that these are the steps that separate the, the men from the boys, the raisins from the grapes, basically. And uh, it tells us to take uh, our book down uh, from the shelf and spend an hour and, and go through our inventory and go through the defects and ask and say, My Creator, I am now willing that you should have all of me good and bad. I pray that you now remove from me every single defective character which stands in the way of my useless, useless, usefulness to you and my fellows. Grant me strength as I go out from here to do your bidding. Amen. And in the third step, prayer, it says, take away my defects, my troubles, so that victory over them may bear witness to those I would help. This is not a self-help group. The only reason that I'm asking for freedom is so that I can be in some kind of position to help other people. And if I enjoy it, that's the bonus round. That's not part of the deal. <clears throat> And, uh, you know, it says in, in Step 11, in Bill's description of it and in Chapter 6, it says that we're never to ask for ourselves. Man, I have tried to do an end run around that so many times. I have come up with a way that me making more money would be good for my sponsees uh, 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 about a thousand times, you know. Man, man, oh man. So, my sponsor said, go, uh, he said, take your, uh, your defects, and guys do it different ways. Some guys take the defects and make a master list. Some guys go through just all the defects, and one at a time, I went through the defects, I said, Pop, please remove this terrible self-centeredness. Father, please remove this terrible mind reading. Father, please remove this terrible um, self-seeking. Father, please remove this self-pity. And at times, with a particularly rough one, I would take a few minutes to do the first three steps on that defect and say, you know, I'm powerless over self-centeredness. My life's unmanageable around self-centeredness. I know that you'll restore me to sanity around self-centeredness. Because I can't keep saying, you know, God can keep Saturn on its axis, but I don't think he can remove my self-centeredness. It just doesn't, it just doesn't figure. And uh, I turn my will and my life, uh, I turn my will and my life over to you, over to self-centeredness over to you. So I've gone a little deeper with some defects that have been particularly difficult. Then he had me do, um, he took me back to chapter 5 and showed me a wonderful prayer uh, to do when I did 6 and 7 on fear. He took me back to page 68 and um, he said, if we take a look at it, at uh, the bottom of the last paragraph, just before now about sex, it says, we ask him to remove our fear, to direct our attention to what he would have us be. Now, if you go up to the bottom of the uh, paragraph above it, it says, we are in the world to play the role he assigns just to the extent as we do, as we think he, we think he would have us to humbly rely upon him, does he enable us to match calamity with serenity. So what my sponsor had me do with each fear is say, Pop, please remove this terrible fear of animals. I had a bad fear of animals direct my attention to what he would have me be. This isn't in the prayer, but the idea here is Scott Redmond's plan, be frightened of animals. God, it's not his plan. My God does not have any interest in me being scared. That is the Scott Redmond program, and all fear is... I, I will throw the gauntlet down to you now. All fear is in the future. There is nothing, nothing that I'm frightened of that's not in the future. And to stay frightened is a negation of step three. I'm not frightened that you have hit me. I am frightened that you're going to hit me again. If you've hit me and you're like this, I'm not frightened about the hit I've received. For me, all fear, 100% of it, and I, I hate using those statistics, but I've never personally been able to find a fear that actually resides in the present or the past. I'm not even scared that you are hitting me. <laughs> I'm scared that I'm going to get hit again. 
And that's just been very, very helpful to me. So, Pop, please remove this terrible fear of animals. Turn my attention to what you would have me be. In other words, you don't want me to be scared of animals. What do you want me to do? And I wait for the voice. Now, the voice could have said, go pet a puppy. It didn't. It said, stay away from animals. That's what it said. I could have gone out and bought fish, but I didn't. I stayed the hell away from animals. Then that paragraph above it says, I humbly, ask, and I, I humbly follow what he's told me to do, right? So now I say, I humbly rely upon you, which means I'm going to now follow the, the suggestion. And then I will immediately commence to outgrow fear. Father, please remove this terrible fear of animals during my attention to what you would have me be. Stay away from animals. I humbly rely upon you. And I stayed away from animals. And in my... Tenth year of sobriety, I was at an AA conference, and a puppy ran up to me, and I, I fell in love with the puppy. And I knew that it was lifted. I knew it was gone. I didn't keep doing puppy checks. <laughs> and the other thing is, and I, I hear this at meetings, and I know that, people, that, that it's well-meaning, and I know it's true for some people, but it's not true for me. I, I don't always have to walk through my fear. My God doesn't always say walk through my fear. That's an Arnold Schwarzenegger-ish running across hot coals on Santa Monica Beach idea. Sometimes he says, stay away from animals. Go away. Walk around it. Stay the hell away from it. it it's not always walk through it. Sometimes it is. But once I get an idea, and I'm going to talk about this more today. I'm going to talk about um, the Sermon on the Mount and uh, one of the sections on the Sermon on the Mount which, where, where, which discusses resist, not evil, which is embedded in the fabric of Alcoholics Anonymous. Because you cannot, we, we keep saying one day at a time, do not stay sober for the rest of your life. Don't do it. Stay sober till 12 o'clock tonight. Stop making oaths. Stop making promises. Stop attaching yourself to your idea of what these things can be and open up to what the hell's going on. And that's imbued in that, in that talk, in the Sermon on the Mount. Stop resisting evil. Emmett Fox, even, and Emmett Fox was a, a minister, goes as far as to say that any, he believed that any clergy person who took a lifelong oath was missing the point. He pissed off a lot of people. You know, but for Alcoholics Anonymous and for alcoholics, I know that that has been true for me. So that was the uh, six and seven step that I did about uh, fear, and uh, what I did with uh, with uh, um, uh, the six and seven I did with sex is I took all the sections where I writ wrote what should I have done instead. Shouldn't have been there. Shouldn't have talked to him. Should have been honest. Would like to be a, a kind of man who can tell the truth and be trustworthy. To take all of those from all the different sexual inventories, put them in one place copied him in one place and he said there it is there's your guy go get that guy ask God in partnership with God if you can walk toward that guy and that's what I did and it's an incredible incredible bit of, of moral psychology um, so I did 6 and 7 for the first time I went back to my sponsor and I said he, he, uh, he had me write up an 8th and ninth step list um, I, I love, you know, 8 and 9 are so remarkable and so important to AA. If you study the history of Alcoholics Anonymous, you see that uh, Alcoholics Anonymous dates uh, are founding from uh, the moment that Dr. Bob took the ninth step. He uh, refused to go and make amends when he first started working the steps with Bill. He uh, felt that he was endangering his livelihood if the community found out he was an alcoholic. Of course, the community knew he was an alcoholic. Uh, my sponsor, who passed away five years ago, was a, a doctor and was so loaded while he was examining a woman, he couldn't stop scratching his nose, so he did one-handed uh, exams. He was doing a breast exam and told this woman that she had a breast on her lump. 
and uh, was asked to leave people alone. And that was uh, pretty much where Bob was. So for him to think that people didn't know was pretty bizarre. But he went to a, uh, an AMA conference, or some kind of doctor's conference in, in uh, Atlantic City, came back, went on a roaring bender, and, uh, and finally went to the community and came back trembling from that experience. He had done step eight and nine, and he never drank again. Now, when he was coming down and he was detoxing from this... Uh, Bender, he had to go do surgery. He was a proctologist. I believe that the, uh, and uh, Bill, and it says in the literature, Bill gave him his last beer and a goofball to steady his nerves and sent him in to do the surgery. Uh, the unsung hero of Alcoholics Anonymous is the man he operated on that morning. I believe that that guy gave more for AA than anybody. Uh, I really, he's never in the movie though. God bless him. <clears throat> Um, humbly ask him to remove these defects. <clears throat> I want to follow my heart. I want to live like a grown man. I, you know how I want to live? I want to take no shit and I want to give none. I want to walk a free man. And that's a great way to live. I want to follow my heart unadorned by the governing force of spiritual sickness like a compass to the true north of my soul. That's the way I want to live. And I have to go to my father and I have to say, Pop, can you do this? Can you please take these? I can't say, take them if you can, big guy. <laughs> I can't say, take them, you rotten, miserable. I have to draw close to him and experience that surrender. The same surrender, if you're new here, that you're experiencing by not drinking. By not drinking. If you're new here, if you're new when you want to drink, 